So I thought I'd try to do, as best I can, a thematic talk. Halloween. <laughs> so, you'll see that it ties into my normal psychological Buddhist spiel, but uh, there's a tenuous connection. So Halloween started as a uh, harvest, pagan harvest ceremony uh, at the end of the the harvest season, and it marked the time of year when people would prepare for the long cold winter months, take stock. It was originally a Celtic pagan ritual for thousands of years, and around the year 600 when Christianity was being exported, Pope Gregory had a, an idea of incorporating different pagan rituals and observances into Christianity rather than trying to have cause the, 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 the attempt to simply have Christianity take over and replace all of the, uh, the uh, pagan rituals wasn't working out too well. So they took this holiday and they created something called All Saints Day on November 1st. So Halloween became All Saints Day Eve. And the reason this is interesting is that in the early Christian mythology, it was said that the souls of the people who had departed during the previous year would wander the earth until All Saints Day when they would apparently go wherever they go. and But on the very last eve, which is our Halloween, the spirits of the dead would take over the living and act out through them. Of course, the Halloween parade also became an excuse to act out on repressed emotions and impulses. And uh, that's what our talk's going to be about tonight. So it was basically a time when people could act out on authentic parts of themselves that had been repressed during the year, the inconvenient things that we don't like acknowledging during our day-to-day -day life. People tend to choose costumes based on traits that are not generally present in their own personalities. In other words, People use costumes as a kind of compensation, what Jung would call. We give ourselves an opportunity to act out on something we struggle with. People who had a trouble talking about death or acknowledging uh, disease, death, and stuff like that would invariably choose costumes that, that represented death. People who expressed a feeling that their lives had become complicated and filled with responsibilities and had lost the sense of childlike innocence, would choose costumes that represented, you know, fairies and, and, and simple childhood uh, characters. 
people chose animal costumes to display admired personality traits that they were struggling cultivating. People who chose cartoon characters showed a marked repression of frivolity and silliness in their character. So Halloween is one of those times that basically we give ourselves permission to uh, indulge what Jung called the shadow self, what Freud called the repressed. And I thought I'd talk a little bit about how the repressed comes about. And then I thought I'm going to lead you through your own little Halloween investigation of the scary stuff that we all have in us that we don't like to look at. So the creation of the repressed is actually quite simple to explain. Emotions are uh, motivations to act. Fear is a motivation for you to get the hell out of wherever you are. Anger is a motivation for you to fight. You have motivations to expel, which is disgust. You have motivations to cower, which is often shame. You have motivations to express uh, approval and connection, which is joy. And sometimes in life, the emotions that we feel conflict with the situation we're in. You might be at a job, and you might feel pissed off or frustrated, and you don't feel you have the permission to express that authentic emotion. You might be with your family, and you might be disappointed, or you might be bored, but you don't feel you have the permission to express those emotions. What we generally do in those situations is we think of something else, and we abandon the activation in the body. In other words, we cut off the emotion. We pull our awareness away from it. Another process is wholesale doing that just as um, a way to deal with any emotion we find troubling. Some of us grew up in families where a caretaker wouldn't tolerate a specific emotion very well. And as what psychologists call a defensive exclusion, whenever we feel that emotion in us, we'll immediately repress it, immediately numb ourselves to what's going on in the body by thinking, visualizing, pulling our attention somewhere else. So for example, if we struggle with loneliness, we might immediately turn on a television or reach for our smartphone. If we grew up in families where our parents couldn't skillfully express anger, and instead anger turned into explosive rage, what would happen is when we start to experience anger, we will repress it. We will think of something or try to talk ourselves down or use some form of rumination to cut off the feeling of anger welling up. So by the time we become adults, there's a whole host of emotional activations we have that, and not only that, experiences of times when we were abandoned by others. Not only the emotions, but experiences too can be repressed. For instance, you might have had an, a situation where you sought understanding and 
affection from your parents and instead you got judgment or rejection and those experiences as well if they're too difficult to hold in your awareness what we'll do is we'll develop avoidance strategies to not allow ourselves to feel those feelings feelings emotions experiences what they really need is to fully express themselves and to resolve themselves when we cut away and bring our attention to something else when we push down the feelings in the body when we clench our jaw or get this feeling of tightness in the throat rather than allowing ourselves to to have that experience of frustration or anger what happens is the emotions get cut off and they wind up what uh, somatic therapists call essentially a well of repressed cut off activations of the stuff in life we don't like to feel our own personal cave of horrors <laughs> our own cave the loneliness we don't like to feel uh, the anger that we didn't permit ourselves to feel the fear that we've cut off the need the one of the strong ones in my experience that I've noticed with people is shame shame almost invariably when we act in a selfish way we do something that we know is not skillful what quickly happens because shame is a really uncomfortable feeling it's a welling up from the gut it feels like a, a like this tightness in the chest and in the throat and it's a kind of self disgust and rather than feel that feeling what we'll do is we'll repress it with immediate self justifications well they really an asshole and i i wasn't doing anything to them that hasn't been done to me and it's a tough world and fuck them anyway and that's that's what happens in this line of business anyway people fuck themselves over and i don't know why people expect me to be any different and meanwhile what we're not doing is we're not feeling the shame the same thing with any other emotion we don't want to feel the loneliness we distract ourselves the fear we might distract ourselves with visualizing immediately uh, a fantasy or we might uh, just avoid that which causes any t any inkling of fear avoidance strategies are very strong as repressive mechanisms so you see a situation that is frightening to you uh, for me sometimes doing my taxes <laughs> so uh, what we'll do is we'll avoid anything that triggers fear rather than feel it so we develop a whole host of avoidance strategies some of them are things like um, fixations on current dramas at work rather than allowing ourselves to feel food addictions alcohol drugs compulsive exercise busyness big one today constantly staying busy so that we don't have to feel the body always having something else to do rushing around through life so that we don't ever have to land fully and feel those cut off emotions as they begin to say oh you stopped for a second well here we are <laughs> oh fuck that i'm off again i don't want to feel this you'll know the presence of repressed activations when you're sitting here dharma punks i haven't yet started the med meditation everything is great you're like, mm -hmm. 
Then I say, close your eyes, and it's like, holy shit! I don't like the way that feels at all. Suddenly my chest feels tight, my stomach feels tight, my head is spinning around in circles. When the fuck is this meditation going to be over? What, it's been 30 seconds? Holy fuck! <laughs> so, the problem is, is that, as Freud said, and every psychologist ever since him has said, is that if it was easy to get rid of the press, repressed or what we call defensive exclusions today, it would be fine, but the repressed doesn't go away. We walk around holding it in uh, these feelings of tension in the stomach, numbness in the chest, tightening in the throat, shoulders that are perennially stuck, jaws that are locked, foreheads that are tight. We carry around all of these ghosts that we've tried to kill off, and they seek any current experience in your life to express themselves. So, for example, if you've gone through a heartbreaking end for a relationship that you didn't truly mourn, you don't allow yourself to feel the sadness, and instead you replace the sadness with anger at your ex-partner, and you just sit around getting caught up in the anger, but you don't feel the sadness, what will happen when you meet somebody else who's an appropriate, intimate partner possibility, you'll shut down. Because the sadness that wants us to shut down will use that opportunity to rise up. If you've been repressing frustration and anger, and you've been replacing that with any other tool that you can do to distract yourself from feeling the frustration, then what you'll do is when you meet somebody new in your life, you'll find yourself acting out of those repressed angers with them. So the repressed doesn't stay hidden in the body. It's constantly waiting for something that will activate it so that it can reach up like a hen from the grave and announce itself. See, Halloween reference, work with me here. <laughs> the repressed is constantly trying to reach up from the grave and let us know and grab onto. You ever have those friends that go, are in a relationship for all of one week and then they go through a breakup and they're distraught? fallen apart for two months. What's happened is a previous feelings of abandonment are using this as an, op an opportunity to express themselves in the present. And the more we stay caught up in the blame-shame stories, we're distracting our attention. Blame and shame distract us from turning to the towards the repressed and usefully, skillfully holding and resolving it. Generally, blame is something like focusing on somebody that we blame our discomfort or our, unha our unhappiness on. And then we will spiral back to shame. It's all my fault. Something I've done wrong. What's the matter with me? I'm broken. All of those ruminative strategies are there to do one thing, and one thing only, 
it is basically to pull our attention away from those physical, somatic rumblings of the repressed that are waiting to be acknowledged. Sure, sometimes in life people act shitty, and a couple of thoughts will do to note that. But when we're caught up in an obsessive, long-winded story about self or others filled with blame and judgment, what's really going on is we're trying to distract ourselves from emotions that we very well can feel but don't want to become aware of. In other words, we're unconsciously aware of them and we're doing anything to distract ourselves. Rumination is an avoidance strategy. So what is the core practice to deal with these uh, experiences, emotions, and impulses that we have pushed into the graveyard of our <laughs> consciousness? I'm still trying to work this Halloween in. So uh, in, in Buddhist lore, the repressed, was represented in two forms, the petas and the asuras. The petas were hungry ghosts that wandered around, and they were the, are our repressed addictions and cravings. Hungry ghosts have big, fat bellies, long, thin necks, tiny little mouths, and huge appetites. And no matter how much they try to eat, it's not enough. But the more interesting creatures for me are the asuras, the asuras are demons. And there are so many stories in Buddhist lore of demons that in caves would visit monks and terrify them. And you don't have to be a Freudian to realize that this is a metaphor for the return of the repressed. The demons invariably were representations of repressed anger, or fear, or sensual lust, or something that the monk was well known for struggling with. And in many of these stories, the common theme that arises is that the skillful monks would deal with their demons by greeting them, and by being courteous and by allowing them to stay in the cave rather than trying to chase them out. Now this is a very different version uh, than Judeo-Christian mythology which when demons and devils would arise the uh, spiritual figures would chase them and say, Be gone, Satan! Be gone! <laughs> in the Buddhist strategy there's no chasing away. In fact, the Buddha's famous line when he would encounter his own personal repressed Mara, the Buddha would say, I see you. I see you. There you are. In the wonderful story of Saka, who was a very, very wise king who went uh, traveling and during his time away, his throne was uh, taken over by what was called an anger-eating demon. And the anger-eating demon grew huge as the guards tried to get rid of it, tried to attack it, tried to remove it from the throne. 
And when Saka returned, he dealt with the situation by going to the demon and by being courteous to it. Can I offer you tea? Can I make, bring you something to make you comfortable? Now, the wisdom in this is that very often the emotions we repress become unbearable to us because it's no longer just the original shame or original fear or original loneliness or original sadness that is repressed, but all the repression as well becomes knotted up in it. We begin to associate these emotions with um, horrific, terrible things, and we believe there's something really wrong with me. If people could really see the real me, they would shudder. Because I know there's something dark in there that's awful. Something that people would hate. Something that's so despicable and ugly that I better keep I better keep my game going. I better watch my tongue. I better better stand guard over everything I say because if I just allow myself to be natural and spontaneous and authentic, this horrible thing is going to come up. It's going to be, yeah. And all that is, is we've associated all the repression and the avoidance and all the uh, running from these very natural emotions that we've repressed have gotten tucked in there. So they begin to be more and more and more frightening. I'm sure you've each in your life had an experience at one point where you were ashamed of something and you finally found somebody safe, tolerant, trustworthy to admit it to. And when you finished, they were like, I don't know what the big deal with that is. <laughs> but to you, it's like, it's a symbol of my lack of humanity and everything that's horrible about me. Uh, I've been sober for 20 years, and for many, for the first... Uh, I started teaching 10 years ago, So, but for the first 10 years before that, I must have heard 70 or 80 what's known in sobriety as fifth steps, where people bring stories of resentments and issues and struggles, and there's always would be one thing that they, the, the sponsee would just struggle with. I can't tell you this. I can't tell you this, I can't tell you this. You have to promise you'll never ever say it. I'm like, okay, okay. I'm you know, thinking they murdered somebody. And invariably it was the most vanilla thing imaginable. You know, I stole money from my mother's wallet. Really? Join the club. I mean, that's called, that's called teenage years. What are you talking about? Some of them I wanted to buy them a better, you know, embarrassing story. <laughs> but this is what happens when we keep repressing things. The more we repress, the more we don't acknowledge, the more this feeling that there's something wrong with me that other people cannot see. And when we feel that way, it becomes harder and harder and harder not only to be open but it becomes harder and harder in life to make friends. This is why as we get older in life, it becomes more difficult to become spontaneous and willing to go through the awkwardness of making friends because we accumulate these feelings of this dark, repressed thing that if we allow ourselves to relax and be open, 
we feel other people will see and reject us. So the process, just like it was for the monks, is to create a space, a safe space, where the demons, they're not demons, they're just old emotions and experiences, can express themselves and arise. We feel them in the body. We might feel fear in the stomach and abandonment in the chest. We might feel a sense of self-censorship in the throat and a, a sense of anger in our shoulders or in, well, in a locked jaw. So we'll feel it first in the body. And when we do begin to create a safe container where we can ex feel and hold these experiences, it becomes easier to talk about them with others, which is very much part of the resolving of old emotions, to seek someone who seems safe and talk about the experiences and emotions we struggle with. Eventually, too, we can begin to unpack all the damage that these repressed emotions have done in our life. For example, people who've repressed sadness and abandonment experience very often will not choose romantic partners who are available because they can't tolerate the idea of being abandoned again. So we'll choose people who are unavailable. And when we really can feel and hold our sadness, guess what? We can actually once again risk, a, risk intimacy with somebody, risk openness. But it requires addressing those feelings we don't like to feel. When we acknowledge and can hold our fear, we can actually begin to move towards that which we are frightened of. We don't have to avoid difficult conversations. We don't have to avoid things that trigger us. We can actually begin to incrementally, slowly move and develop our ability to tolerate all of life. But we won't be able to move towards that which frightens us whether it's conflict or talking in front of people, performing, creativity, putting our work out there, whatever it is that frightens us, we won't be able to do it unless we can hold the fear. So, what I'd like you to do is find a comfortable seated position. And for this brief meditation, you don't have to sit absolutely rigidly. Sit comfortably. Sit in a way. The work here is not about being absolutely motionless. It's more about bringing awareness to areas that we are often not aware of. So closing the eyes. And for this, I'd like you to take a nice full in-breath and raise the shoulders up. And then release the shoulders down. And then take a nice full in-breath, tucking the belly in as tight as you can, just keeping like, like you're pulling your belly button into the spine. And then release. Big, fat belly. So, in that area of the mind, your little personal movie screen where you see memories, some people see it right behind the eyes when their eyes are closed. Some people see it 
in what feels like behind the forehead. I'd like you to bring to mind an image that represents uh, an event that is emotionally loaded for you. It could be a time when you felt rejected by a friend or by a parent, a time when you went through something difficult with uh, a personal experience. And I don't want you to get caught in the story, so see if you can just hold a resonant image. I often find that bringing to mind the expression on someone's face during a time I've experienced interpersonal conflict, abandonment, rejection, just holding their expression holding that experience in the mind and then just ask yourself what needs to be felt how does this feel you might need to even be a little bit more specific how does it feel to have someone say they're leaving how does it feel to have someone say they don't want to be with me how does it feel to have someone say they're upset they're angry they're disappointed and see if you can find that experience in the body Don't stay up in the mind. Just find in the body even the tiniest bit of activation, the emotion stirring from its sleep, seeking your attention, a feeling that we've been running from perhaps for many, many years. Wherever it is, and when we invite emotions, they're generally not as strong as when they catch us off guard. So it might just be very subtle. But see if you can find any area, any part of you that wants to be known. How does it feel? And just allow that to be, not running from it, not hiding, being with. Finally, still providing a safe space for whatever needs to be felt. Just 
send it thoughts of compassion and care. It's all right. You're allowed. I won't turn my back on you. It's all right. You're allowed. I won't turn my back on you. I'll take care of you. Releasing the image, giving permission for the feelings to stay, allowing, knowing that we can take care of ourselves, and once we can feel these energies that so need our attention, we can then honor them by expressing them to others. And when you're ready, you can open your eyes.